Father, thank you that uh, you've given us your word. Uh, you've given us so much, so many uh, blessings and tools in it. Thank you that you haven't left us uh, to guess about things, but that you have communicated to us the things that we need to know. Lord, we pray that you would help us to receive and understand and apply your word in our lives. Lord, I pray that you would use your word this morning to comfort us and to challenge us, to shape us so that we are more like you, more in the image of your son. There are things that we are holding on to, sins that we cling to, regrets, shames, all kinds of things in our past, Lord. And Lord, I pray that you would be working in us so that we would confess those things, repent of those things, let them go, and we would walk into newer freedom in our new life in you. Lord, I pray that you would work in us now through your word. We thank you for your grace and your mercy towards us, your patience and your goodness. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, we have, for the last four weeks, been working through a short series on church discipline. This will be our last week in this. And to quickly summarize some of where we have been, we've looked at discipline in general in two words, two forms, the formative discipline and corrective discipline. We need this in our lives. All of us do at every stage of life. It's that stake that holds the tree straight so that it, it can grow up when the wind's blowing. It's the guardrail that keeps us from falling off of the, the cliff at the, at the lookout. That's formative, positive discipline. And then corrective discipline is when we have erred, when we have strayed, we need to be turned around and brought back. And if you're a parent, you know well the need for both formative and corrective discipline as we grow young people. The first week we were together, we looked at this idea from Hebrews that God loves you, and because he loves you, he will discipline you. The writer of Hebrews says, because when you become a Christian, you're adopted into the family of God as a son or daughter of God, then God, your father, out of love for you, he will discipline you. And if, if he never disciplines you, it is actually evidence that you're not his. You're not in the family because as a good fa father, he will discipline his children. We talked about how the goal of church discipline, that is when a church works together to discipline someone and call them in correction back, when that happens, the goal in the New Testament is always restoration. It's not revenge. It's not hurting somebody. It's not putting somebody in their place. The goal is restoration of a wayward brother or sister. The last three weeks, we've been focused in on Matthew 18, which provides the general framework for us. These are the words of Jesus himself speaking to his disciples. It's the second time that we have recorded that he actually uses the word church. It really isn't a church at that point. It's just him and his disciples, and the church would be born after his resurrection. But he's giving them instructions for the future. And he says this, If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. And if he listens to you, you have gained your brother. So first stage, in private, the goal is restoration. If he listens, he is restored. But if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you, that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. So you take your backup, again, seeking restoration. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. 
we see here the basic framework and the, the basic goal or purpose. Our goal is restoration, and the, the overarching purpose is one of holiness, that Jesus is inviting us into his work of discipling, of shaping each other, so that we would be more holy. God has called us to be holy like he is holy. We saw this in 1 Peter last week. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. But as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct, since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. God wants his church as a group and his church as individuals to be holy. He takes this very seriously, much more seriously than we take it. We tend to flirt with and embrace and treasure our sin. God wants to kill our sin. He wants us to be holy like he is holy. Today, we're going to take that general call of holiness and the general framework of Matthew 18, and we're going to look how some other places in the New Testament provide some different perspectives and some modifications on the plan based on different situations. Different situations require different approaches in order to achieve those same goals of restoration and holiness. If this idea of church discipline is new to you, or rather new to you, you may have a, a gut-level natural reaction that this is, this is not a good thing. This is a negative thing. What is going on here? And this makes sense if you think of religion primarily as a personal thing between you and God. But if you think of Christianity the way that the New Testament explains it, where we are all connected to each other as members of a body, and we need each other, and we affect each other, and if one part of the body suffers, the whole part suffers. If one rejoices, the whole body rejoices. If we're all connected, and if God has actually spoken to us in his word, and his word is authoritative, and he tells us to do certain things, then we have a different lens through which we view this. But if this is new, if these are new ideas to you, I completely understand that this is like, this is weird. What is going on? I pray that you'll patiently work through this with us. You could listen to the messages of the last few weeks if you want to get up to speed. One of the common reactions when a church tries to practice church discipline is... Uh, it's, just, it's real common in actually a lot of areas in life. There's this reaction of, but you, you shouldn't be judgmental. Don't judge. And we go to Matthew 7, and we, we get our, our proof text from there. Jesus himself says, judge not that you not be judged, right? And we usually shorten it. We just say judge not or don't judge. Or to put it in today's words, you can't judge me or you ain't my judge or when we're talking about a situation, we sometimes say, he's getting all judgy. Franklin's smiling. You've said that, haven't you, Franklin? If we read more of what Jesus says here, he says, judge not that you not be judged. For with the judgment you pronounce, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. Why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? How can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye when there is the log in your own eye? You hypocrite. First take the log out of your own eye, 
And then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. This passage took on a personal meaning to me yesterday. I woke up with something in my right eye. And I was trying to get it out. And in the process of trying to get it out for an hour, I scratched my eye. So I ended up going to the emergency room because I thought the thing, whatever it was, speck, log, turtle, whatever it was, there was something in my eye that was not right. And uh, by the time I got to the emergency room, the thing was out, but I had also scratched my eye. So uh, they checked it all out, verified everything was okay, gave me some medicine, put in my eye. But that whole morning yesterday, I'm thinking about this passage, and I've got that, that speck in my eye, and I'm thinking, what would it be like for the emergency room doctor to walk in with this big log sticking out of his eye and say, okay, buddy, let me, let me get this speck out of your eye here. I would not be interested in that. I would think, this is a terrible situation. Please, nurse, find me another doctor. And that's the absurdity of what Jesus is talking about here. He said, we, we tend to be hypocrites. We look at somebody else and we judge them on something, and yet we've got something that's even bigger wrong in us, and we're going to ignore that. When Jesus is talking in this passage, he's not saying you should never judge. Otherwise, it wouldn't make sense for him to later say, take the log out of your own eye so that you can take the speck out of your brother's eye, because that's an act of judgment. If you say to your brother, you have something wrong, let me help you, that is an act of judgment. Jesus' concern here is with the hypocrisy and the absurdity, the foolishness of us thinking in our own messed up this, we could fix somebody else who's got a smaller problem than we do. If, that's Matthew 7. If we flip to John 7, we get this. Jesus himself says, do not judge by appearances, but judge with right judgment. So he tells us not to never judge, but to judge rightly. It's not on a surface level, not on a... Uh, just the way things appear, but to judge rightly. What's really going on? You can't simply say, don't judge, like our culture would want us to say. Instead, we must say, we have to somehow take Jesus' words here, and we must judge rightly. That is what he's saying. Now, this goes away against our modern sensibilities, where kind of the creed of the modern age is, you be you, I'll be me, We'll leave each other alone and everything will be great. But Jesus, he doesn't allow us to think that way. Because we need each other. And with his goals of our increased holiness, he uses each other, uses us on each other to discipline, to correct, to form and turn each other back. This makes sense. But if you think of God as just a God of love and mercy, not a God of judgment or God of holiness, then it doesn't make so much sense. But the picture of God in the Bible is one of perfect holiness, perfect justice, perfect love, perfect mercy, all of that together. And when we view it through that lens, these words of Jesus start to make sense. God uses us to discipline each other, and that is by nature, an act of judgment. We're not to crush each other, but we are to call each other to repentance, for that is the way of life and the path of holiness. In 1 Corinthians, 
which is our main text for today. We have a letter originally written by Paul to the church in Corinth. He had helped plant the church, had helped grow them towards maturity, he had left. Now he's writing a series of letters back to them. And in, in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, where we are today, Paul is going to, he's going to confront the church and a person in the church in a very strong way. The Corinthian church was struggling with various sins, and many of them were sexually related. The Corinth culture that the church was in was very saturated with sexual sin, but there was a sin happening in the church in Corinth that even the corrupt culture around them wouldn't tolerate. In this case, there's a man in the church who is committing incest with his stepmom, his father's wife. How did this come about? Did did father's first wife, the, the mom, did she die? Did he remarry? Did something start growing and it became this incestuous relationship? Is dad now on the outside in shame and there's this new family? We don't know all of those details. We just know that there's a man in the church as a member claiming to be a Christian in an incestuous relationship with his stepmom. If we had a situation like that in the church, how would we deal with that? How would we approach that? It's out in the open. It's public. What would we do with that? Paul has some very specific instructions for the church in Corinth for this specific event. 1 Corinthians 5, 1 through 13. If you're reading along in a pew Bible, it's on page 954. Paul writes back to them, and you can hear the, the frustration in his voice. It's actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you and of a kind that is not tolerated even among the pagans, all of those people around in the culture outside. For a man has his father's wife. He, Paul is amazed that somebody is doing this and that the church is apparently tolerating it. The culture rejected this. There were very few hard lines in the Corinthian culture but incest was one of them. They could sin in all kinds of other ways and celebrate it, but the sin of this particular guy, the culture around him even rejected that. How did the church deal with it? Verse 2. And you are arrogant, proud of it. Ought you not rather mourn? Let him who has done this be removed from among you. So Paul just like, cuts right to the chase. He says to the church, you guys are wrong in this. Yes, the man is sinful, but you are wrong because you're celebrating it. You're proud of it. It's like you're saying, we are, we're so loving and accepting. We'll, we'll accept anybody and their sin because we think God accepts anybody and their sin. And so we're, we're super tolerant, and the gates are super wide open, and it doesn't matter how you're living right now. You can be a part of this. Paul, Paul says, then, let him who has done this be removed from among you. And you might think, well, wait a minute, Paul, aren't you familiar with Matthew 18? You've got to go in person, and you've got to bring some backup, and you tell it to the church. If he doesn't listen to the church, then he's removed from among you. But there's this specialness of this situation where Paul is able to kind of parachute in from the outside and say, this is so wrong. You guys are so wrong. 
You have to take a measure of this right away. Verse 3. For though absent in body, I'm present in spirit, and as if present, I have already pronounced judgment on the one who did such a thing. When you are assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus, and my spirit is present with the power of our Lord Jesus, you are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh, so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. There's some weird language in there. Paul's not saying that his spirit's going to leave his body and be present over there in the church. It's just like when we would say casually, well, I'm with you in spirit, buddy. That's the idea that he's saying. But the more important thing that he's saying is when you're gathered together as a church, and he says gathered in the name of our Lord Jesus, so gathered under the authority of Jesus in the name representing Jesus. Last week we talked about us as an uh, as ambassadors that work as an embassy, that we are an embassy of the kingdom of God in our culture. So you are gathered under the name, the lordship of Jesus, and you represent him. When you do that, he says, put this man out. I've already pronounced judgment, Paul says. Jumps right to the last stage. Maybe the other stages were already worked out. We just don't know the details of it. But he says, get everybody together under the authority of the Lord Jesus, in the name of the Lord Jesus, and you must discipline this man. Why? It's for the hope of restoration. It says, there at the end, it says, uh, that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. Paul is hoping that this man will still repent, that he will turn around. Now, what's the motivation there? Verse 5, you are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of his flesh. Is he saying that he hopes the man dies? That's not what he's saying. Most of the time in the New Testament, when they talk about the flesh, they're talking about the sinful old nature. So before you became a Christian, your nature was sinful. When Jesus saves you and the Spirit comes to live inside of you, there's this battle then, like for the rest of your life here on earth, between your old nature and your new nature, your flesh and your spirit. But Paul says, deliver this man over to Satan. What is he saying there? Well, last week we also talked about, just as we are an embassy, an island of the kingdom surrounded by a hostile other kingdom. That other kingdom is ruled by Satan. Jesus calls him the prince of this world. And so when Paul says here, Del deliver the man to Satan, what he means is remove the man from your kingdom community, place him back into the kingdom of Satan so that he can't fool himself into thinking that he's okay with the king. He can't get the benefit and the protection of the kingdom while shaking his fist at the king. Makes sense. As hard as that sounds, the goal of restoration is clear there. The hope is that this pain inflicted by the putting out will cause this man to see the error of his ways and to come in repentance that his soul might be saved his spirit might be saved, it says, in the day of our Lord Jesus. This is hard. This is foreign to us. This seems extreme, but these are the words of God to us for our good. It is out of love for this rebellious man that Paul tells the church to do this. We see a similar idea if we turn to 1 Timothy. Paul again writing 
He writes to Timothy, a young pastor. It's the same idea. He says this, 1 Timothy 1.18. This charge I entrust to you, Timothy, my child, in accordance with the prophecies previously made about you, that by them you may wage the good warfare, holding faith and a good conscience. By rejecting this, some have made shipwreck of their faith. And here we get to the point. Among whom are Hymenaeus and Alexander, whom I have handed over to Satan, that they may learn not to blaspheme. Now, we don't know anything more about these guys. Apparently, they were blaspheming. There is a discipline process in the past. Paul speaks of the past, handed over to Satan. So they've gone through a process. They've put Hymenaeus and Alexander out of the church, handed them back into the, the kingdom of Satan, of the world, so that they may learn not to blaspheme. There's that hope of rest, rest, uh, restoration again there. They need to learn not to speak falsely about God or to put themselves in the place of God. That's what blasphemy is. So they've been put out with the hope that they will come in in the future. Before we go back to 1 Corinthians, I want to look at another passage from 1 Timothy, just a few chapters down in chapter 5. Paul's going to switch from just talking about regular members, he's going to talk about elders. How, how do we deal with elders in the church? Do not admit a charge against an elder except on the evidence of two or three witnesses. So this is in protection of the elders. You can't just make something up about an elder, bring the charge by yourself, and expect to get rid of that elder, bring him down. You need truthful witnesses too. But Paul then switches gears to how do you discipline a sinning elder? As for those who persist in sin, he's, he's talking about elders in the context here. As for those who persist in sin, rebuke them in the presence of all so that the rest may stand in fear. Strong words again. Rebuke the sinning, the unrepentant, I'm going to continue in my sin, elder, in the presence of all, he's meaning the whole church, do it publicly. Mr. Elder, we have confronted you, you have refused to repent, you are walking in disobedience to your Lord, I call you out, I rebuke you in front of all, so that the rest may stand in fear. Who are the rest? Not just the church, but the rest of the elders, too. If one elder is ensnared in a sin and refuses to repent, and the, the church and the elders say, it's no big deal, well, then that opens the door for the elders to sin in all kinds of ways, and that destroys a church and destroys the faith of individuals who thought they could trust the elders as spiritual leaders. That's what he's getting at here. And so, as strong and as, as much as it goes against our our gut in this age right now, this idea of rebuking somebody in front of everybody else. Again, this is the Word of God. Clear instructions. All right, so let's go back to 1 Corinthians, dealing with that incestuous man again. Paul's going to talk not just about how it's really messed up this guy's life, but how it affects the whole church, because we're all one body, and what one part of the body is connected to all the rest of the body. 1 Corinthians 5, 60-13. Your boasting is not good. You guys are proud of yourselves for how open-minded you are. This is not good, he says. Do you not know 
that a little leaven leavens the whole lump. Think yeast instead of leaven. Cleanse out the old leaven that you may be a new lump as you really are unleavened. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Let us therefore celebrate the festival, not with the old leaven, the leaven of malice and evil, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. What is Paul talking about there? There's a bunch of Old Testament context there. He's going all the way back to Exodus where the Israelites are called out of Egypt. They leave slavery and God says, don't take any yeast, any leavened bread with not the slightest little piece of yeast is allowed to go with you out of Egypt. And we think, that is weird. Like of all the things that they could worry about, why make sure that they don't have any yeast with them? It's because God is using that, even in the Old Testament, to set up here in the New Testament, this idea of the yeast, the leaven in the lump permeates the whole loaf. So if you were making bread in the ancient days, you get it all kneaded up and you pull off a lump and you set it aside and it's got its yeasty thing going on inside of there and and it'll grow and it'll rise and maybe it'll sour and ferment some but the next time you make a loaf of bread you'll take your old lump and you'll stick it in you'll knead it together and it'll do its thing get the bread rising you'll pull another piece off set it aside for the next loaf over and over again if you've made sourdough bread it's the same idea right paul says that that little lump with the yeast the leaven in it when you stick it in with a loaf it permeates the whole loaf. That is the point. That's why you do it in order to make your bread rot. But he's using it as a negative example. He's saying, if you allow this guy and you celebrate his sin in your church, it's going to leaven the whole loaf. That's the warning. And he points back to that Passover celebration, the leaving of Exodus, and he says, look, this is how serious God is about it. He wouldn't even let the Israelites take any yeast with them from Egypt, as helpful as that would have been. That old life, they had to completely leave it alone, even the yeast. That's true for us now. We have our old life before Christ, and we need to completely leave the things of the old life behind. Don't try to hold on to your favorite sins from the old life and hope that they don't ruin your new life. Instead, get rid of it all. Get rid of all the leaven so that your new life is free of That's the picture of what's going on here. And he applies it then to the whole church. When we, when we see this and we have these strong words where he's actually saying like the, the guy is that leaven. It's sin and him and your acceptance of it and you have to, you have to put him out. It's so, so legalistic, it's so judgmental. And yet if God's goal is the holiness of his people... It makes sense. Now, you might be naturally feeling some fear here. It's like, well, wait a minute. I mean, I sin thought and deed all the time. I got little sins. I got big sins. I got things that have hidden. I've got all this. Like, if we applied this to everybody and everybody, we'd kick all of us out right now. There wouldn't be any of us left, right? Paul didn't write back to them about all the other things. He dealt with this big, obvious embraced, celebrated, and shameful, even in the eyes of the culture, sin. Like, if you've got a completely corrupt culture looking at your church and saying, wow, we are not as sinful as them, you've got a problem, right? That's, that is not the way it's supposed to be. So Paul focuses in on this, this serious thing, and as the church deals with the serious thing, they are forced to confront 
the things that they feel are less serious in their own lives. That's we talked about last week. That's one of the side effects, which is actually one of the main goals, of church discipline. It forces us to deal with our own sin. Get the log out of our own eye before you get the speck out of your brother's eye. It's on purpose for our own holiness' sake also. You might say, well, if a church is going to behave like this, isn't it going to breed a culture where everybody is always afraid of being picked on and called out by other people, and we're going to close in on ourselves, and we're not going to reach out to anybody? And who, who in their right mind would want to be investigating the claims of Christianity or trying out a church if we're all yelling at each other, sinner, sinner? Paul has a different take on this. The way he views outreach and the idea of purity and holiness in the church. Verse 9, I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people, not at all meaning the sexually immoral of this world, or the greedy or the swindler or the idolaters. Since then, you would need to go out of the world. He says, guys, I'm not telling you to not hang out with sinful people outside the church. In fact, that's your job. Jesus says, go into all the world, which is full of sinful people, and, and make disciples of him and baptize them in the name of the Lord Jesus and Father and the Spirit and teach them all, teach them to obey everything that I've commanded. That's the Great Commission. And you, you can only do that if you're out intentionally in relationship with people who may be con considered notorious sinners. Paul says, I wrote to you, don't associate with sexually immoral people, not meaning the people outside the church, you see where he's going with this. Verse 11. But now I'm writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother if he is guilty of sexual immorality, or greed, or is an idolater, or a reviler, or a drunkard, or a swindler. He could have put all kinds of things in that list. He just chooses a few of them to narrow them down to it. Not even to eat with such a one. Again, this is the word of God for us. And we have to recognize that we want to buck against this. This seems extreme, and yet God has said this to us. On the one hand, no one is perfect. We can't just kick us all out. On the other hand, if you're a member of a church, you're a member of VCC, and you're persisting in a sin, you've been called to repentance, and your, your response is, I don't care, I'm going to continue in this, those two realities, they don't go together. You're saying, I'm an ambassador of my king, and I'm happy to undermine the lordship of my king. I'm happy to be a traitor, and yet still get the benefits of my king. To go back to that idea of embassy, it just doesn't make sense. And So there's this tension, like, I want to hold on to my sin, I want to be the Lord of my own life, and yet I still want to be considered a representative of my Lord. Those things don't go together. How do you resolve that? There's a couple ways you can resolve that. You could say, well, I'm just going to resign my membership then. That'll resolve the tension. I can live honestly with myself as my Lord of my life, do what I want, and then relieve the tension of where I'm publicly proclaiming that Jesus is my Lord and that he has control of my life. Those tension's gone. How much better would it be, though, to say, I'm going to take that sinful part of my life, and I'm going to confess it. I'm going to ask for help from brothers and sisters to hold me accountable, to, 
to help me walk in this new life of obedience so that my life lines up with my proclamation, that is a much better option. Now, it's a harder option, but it's a God-glorifying option, and it's an option that leads to life, and it gets rid of that tension that we're talking about. Verse 12. For what have I to do with judging outsiders? It's a rhetorical question. It means I don't care about judging the outsiders. I don't got time for that, right? Is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? God judges those outside. Purge the evil person from among you. Again, hard, direct words. We can't sugarcoat that last sentence at all. We can't say, well, the Greek's a little unclear, and what it really means is give them a lollipop and a pat on the head. That, that is not it. Purge the evil person from among you, Paul says to the Corinthian church. Man. Don't you wish you just hadn't ever read that or heard that? Skip over that whole chapter. This is your first Sunday with us. Probably thinking, this church is cold. This is crazy. But if the, if the Bible is the, the actual word of God given to us and it's authoritative and it's perfect and it's supposed to be applied to our lives, then we've got to figure out what to do with this. One more situation. In Titus chapter 3, Paul gives us another take on this church discipline thing. There was somebody in the church or a group in the church that was stirring up division. They were causing divisions in the church. It was supposed to be one body. They were splitting people and groups off, stoking division, stoking discontent, getting people mad, and I'm on this side, and you're on this side, and we got to get rid of this person. We gotta, you know, there's just this division happening in the church that Titus is pastoring. And Paul, as a mentor, writes to Titus, and he says this, Titus 3. As for a person who stirs up division, after warning him once and then twice, have nothing more to do with him, knowing that such a person is warped and sinful and he is self-condemned. We can see a similarity there to the whole Matthew 18 thing. You get first step and a second step, and then Paul just kind of smooshes things together and you have nothing to do with him. Now he's saying that directly to Titus, as that pastor, he's saying, I have nothing to do with that person. But it's logical to assume that he's saying, really, in the, the whole church context here, somehow we have, to, we have to discipline this person. He describes the person as warped, sinful. Thing keeps turning off here. Warped, sinful, and self-condemned. Warped is really the one that stood out to me person believes that he might be doing the right thing. That maybe he's, he's pulling together this group as a, as a righteous protest against whatever is wrong in Titus's church here. He's lining up support against Titus or against the elders of the church. He's dividing people off. He does not respect or honor Titus and his leadership, or the other elders there. We're not told what's going on, but this guy has it upside down. Maybe he even thinks, like, you know, if, if I was in charge, then we wouldn't have this, 
this problem. And he doesn't see that he, the warped one, who's seen things upside down, that he's actually causing a problem. It may not be the problem. It may not be the thing that he's upset about. But in causing division, in dividing the local church body, he is causing problems. He He sees the sin of divisiveness, which he's part of, as a good thing for whatever reason. This is common in so many churches. One last short passage. We looked at this last week. We've talked about the why and the who and the what of church discipline. We've talked a lot about what to do, why to do it. What about the how? Let me remind you again of Galatians 6.1 that tells us about the attitude, the inclination of the heart. Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. So we've got, again, the command to restore through that discipline process. You're trying to restore a brother who is caught in sin. How are you to do that? You're supposed to do it in a spirit of gentleness. Depending on the sin, depending on the relationship with that brother or sister that you're confronting, gentleness may come naturally to you. Gentleness may come very hard. If it comes very naturally to you, you probably need to be on guard that you're not being too soft. If it's coming hard to you, then here, Paul's warning Go in the spirit of gentleness. Discipline yourself. Make sure that you are going in gentleness. And if you can't go in gentleness, then don't go. And pray, God, please help me to go in gentleness. And then when you're ready, go in gentleness. and Try to restore that person. And then there's that other warning. Keep a watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. Recognizing that when you go and you try to restore a lost brother, you yourself could be tempted too. Now that could be the same temptation, right? So if you're going to confront somebody and gossip, you'll find it easy to gossip about that person as you're trying to prepare by talking things through with other people, right? That's easy to do. So easy. If it's a sexual sin, you may go and confront that brother in a sexual sin, and yet you yourself are very being tempted into a different version of sexual sin at the same time. Or it doesn't even matter what the sin is, you can go and confront the person and be trapped in pride and arrogance yourself. Those are such real dangers. And so Paul warns us, keep watch on yourself, lest you too also be tempted. So we've got the overarching goal of restoration, the overarching purpose of holiness, those are always the same. This spirit of gentleness and being on guard against temptation, those are always the same. And finally, there's a biblical call to unity, which is always the same. Situations in the particular messes, those, those are change and you may need a fast process, a slow process, a complicated process, a simple process, those things change, but those, these other things, the goal of restoration, the purpose of holiness, the, the gentleness, the being on guard, the biblical call to unity, those stay the same. So let's end with that positive, the call to unity. I ask you to turn in the Bible to Ephesians 4, 1 through 6. 
says, I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. Again, this is not a singular you. This is a plural you. He's writing to a whole church. All of you walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. Now, just a little side note in there. It doesn't say eager to manufacture or create the unity and the bond of peace. Our unity is created by the Spirit of God coming to dwell in us as Christians. When you're born again, the Spirit comes into you, into you permanently, and He unites you with other Christians. You don't get to make unity with another Christian. The Spirit does. The call here is to maintain that unity, to guard it, to strengthen it, protect it. Maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all, through all, and in all. Lots of ones, lots of alls there, but it's clear through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, the Apostle Paul writing to the Ephesian church is saying, please, work to be gentle, to love each other, to hold together the bond of unity that that the Spirit has made in you. You are under your one Lord. He is your master. You are his people. All of you belong to him as one body, united in one spirit. So please guard that unity. That's a high call for us. That is hard to do. And truthfully, without the Spirit, we have no hope of doing that. Just like we have no hope of saving ourselves without Jesus' sacrificial death on the cross on our behalf. We are dependent on God the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit if we are going to be able to do the things that he is telling us to do. So I'm going to pray, and then we're going to sing a final song about Jesus Christ being our living hope. I pray that that it will resonate in your heart, that you will proclaim truthfully that without God, we have no hope of being able to pull off the things that he has asked us to do here. Let's pray. Father, thank you that you haven't left us in the dark, but that you provide us clear instruction. Thank you that you didn't leave us trapped in our sin and darkness, but that you came on a rescue mission. You gave yourself so that we could be redeemed, we could be forgiven, we could be brought into your family. Thank you that you then send us out on mission to tell others about how you have offered to rescue and redeem them. And thank you, Lord, that you use us to remind each other, sometimes gently and quietly, sometimes very strongly, that we now belong to you. That our lives must be submitted to you, that you are our Lord and you've called us to holiness, and you use us with each other in order to make us more holy. That in small ways and in big ways, you discipline us so that we can be more like your son. So Lord, if, if we have resisted that discipline, if we have 
hidden our sin, if we have refused to repent, we have fled from a brother or sister who's pursuing us in love for our good, Lord, please humble us. Please show us the folly of our our foolish ways and turn us back. If we have refused to pursue a brother or sister out of fear, out of guilt or feared hypocrisy, Lord, please give us the courage to confess and repent of what we ourselves have done wrong and are doing wrong and thinking wrong. Help us to deal with that log in our own eyes, and then, Lord, give us the courage to go to our brother about the speck in his eye. Lord, would you, would you work in us to be simultaneously uh, uniting us, helping us to love each other better, and also weeding out the stuff that's corrupted. Show us, show us our sin, individually and as a body, and give us the courage to, to repent of it and walk away and to, to have nothing to do with that, that old life, that old leaven lump that fill our whole new life with leaven. Instead, Lord, help us to be your people, following after your call to holiness. We cannot do it. We need you to do it in us. In Jesus' name, amen.